We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. This episode is sponsored by FX's Fleischman is in Trouble. Starring Jesse Eisenberg, Claire Danes, Lizzie Kaplan, and Adam Brody. This drama tells the story of recently divorced Toby Fleischman, who dives into the world of app-based dating with the kind of success he never had in his youth. Then, his ex-wife disappears, leaving him with their two children and no hint of her return. Effects's Fleischman is in trouble. Streaming November 17th, only on Hulu. Okay, ready? Think what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a I want to know something she needs. I think about everyone you need. I hold in it. Things are really real now. I have you seen you wanting you. Hey. It's her ratio. Okay, though. It's her ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> Read Until You Understand is a really interesting, extraordinary book that mixes the personal with the intellectual. Um, talk about what you set out to do. Sure. Um, I think there were a couple of things. One, I, you know, I just felt like I'd been reading and teaching that body of literature for so long and that I wanted a broader audience to have access to it and to share what I thought it had to teach us. You know, um, everybody, but especially people who live in the United States, um, about history, about democracy, about humanity. So I knew I wanted to do that. And then I also realized that um, my the, the way that I came to value that body of literature did not start with um, my training as an academic, you know, that I started thinking that books by and about Black people were important to me um, and important to the world Not before I ever entered, you know, a, a graduate school classroom or even a college classroom. And I wanted to be honest about that. I wanted to be forthright about um, the conditions that produced my desire to read and that taught me how to read initially. And those were very personal and very familial and very communal. You know, so that's it was kind of both of those things together that made me want to write it. Dr. Farah Jasmine Griffin is the chair of the Black Studies Department at Columbia and the director elect of the Black Studies Department at Columbia University. She's a brilliant person I've known for a long time. 
and the author of a new book called Read Until You Understand the Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature. It's an honor to have my friend, Dr. Griffin, on the show. Let's go. Dr. Griffin, Dr. Farah Jasmine Griffin on Torre Show. You know, certain books and certain authors meant so much to my mom and that love and that reverence was uh, transmuted to me. And partly because she felt, she, I think she felt she had a little bit of a mission in that, okay, we're sending you to a good school, but they're not giving you enough black literature, not giving you enough black history. So we're going to make sure that you get it here. And even some of it was... Not necessarily intentional, but just her love and pride about Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, um, certain other people was so high that it just, you know, it it wasn't like I'm trying to give the children these lessons. But in that 70s, 80s period when we were coming up, there was this explosion of especially black women, but also black male writers um, who, you know the average middle-class mom could be super proud of and dad could be proud of. And like, you know, that love was being transmuted to um, people like us when we were little. Absolutely. I mean, I think about, you know, how there were certain books that were just around the house, you know? So if they came out, they were going to be in the house along with Ebony and Jet, you know? Um, And there was this sense that they were important and that we should have them and we should read them and um, that we should value them. And, and you're so right. It's, I think it was, there wasn't even the expectation that we would get it in school, right? Right. All right. So what was the expectation of school was, I'm going to send you to a good school so you get the best education possible, but there's a bunch of stuff that's really important to you that you're not going to get there. And so we've got to shore you up and give it to you at home. Did you guys have um, the black book that Toni Morrison edited? So we did not. Um, I didn't discover that one until much later on my own. You know, the books okay. that I had were a little bit earlier because um, my dad died like in the early 70s. Okay. Um, so, but that was one of the ones that I ended up collecting on my own. But yes, that's exactly the kind of book. I mean, I remember years later when the Norton Anthology of African-American Literature came out. I remember talking to people and we were like, this isn't just going to be important for like classrooms. Like there are people who are going to buy this for Christmas to have on the shelf. Totally. (laughs) Totally. I I felt like almost all the black homes I knew had that book. It was like one of those staples. Did you have, I don't, I'm not going to do too much of this, but did you, do you have those golden highlights comic books? You know, the ones I'm talking about? Those are the best. Those are the best. Oh my God. Oh my God. The two parter about Frederick Douglass. Yes. Right. Those are the best. So you were so right. I can see them right now. I can just yeah. close my yeah. eyes and see Frederick Douglass in those comic books. Yeah. What a great idea. Those were right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. No, I love those. I love those. <laughs> um, uh, you know, so so you you group this book in terms of these big ideas around black people and our relationship to America. And one of the things that jumped out at me, you talk about um, black freedom. And the idea, ideal of America. And I, I want to hear you talk about that a little bit because the the idea 
and the ideal of America has never included black freedom. That was never, or all men were created equal did not mean you and I at all. And to this day, we're still struggling for that. No, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the remarkable things that black people did, you know, it was one of those kind of amazing trickster moves, right? That they were like, oh, really? You want to talk about freedom? Okay. Clear. Like they knew. They knew that the people, the architects of the American experiment didn't include us. Even Phyllis Wheatley knew that, right? Um, but they were like, okay, you've got this ideal called freedom, and then here we are. We're, we're, we're definitely not free. You're calling yourselves slaves? You think you're a slave? You know, we are the people who are suffering, and we're going to force you to live up to that ideal, right? And so every generation, and then you sometimes you get people like, um, you know, you get Douglas who says, it's a beautiful idea. It's beautiful, and it we have to make it real. And then you get people like Malcolm who are like, yeah. <laughs> it was never meant for you, right? And it was built on your back, right? And so, like, it's never going to mean you, ever. Um, and I think that's been the constant tension in the tradition that I write about. I think that... And one of the messages that I've gotten from Black history is that we have been pushing America to be America, to live up to what it claims to be. And when we have succeeded, we have nudged America kicking and screaming closer and closer to what it sees itself as. Absolutely. And and the thing about it is we've pushed it, we've pushed it, and we when it finally does move an inch— we are not the only beneficiaries. A whole bunch of people who were not at the forefront of that struggle <laughs> are the beneficiaries, right? So we make it better for everybody. And we drag some people kicking and screaming. We're still dragging them. Mm. Especially in the last 30 some years, it seems very much like a pendulum shift. Every step we make, yeah. we see two steps back. And then we have to make two steps just to get one step further. Absolutely. Uh, moving from, you know, an Obama to Trump was definitely symbolic of one step forward, you know, three or four steps back. Absolutely. And that's the history you've had. That's the history. I mean, you know, 30 years, let's go back to Civil War and Reconstruction. You know, I mean, Reconstruction was the two steps forward. And then snatch it back into the Dark Ages. Like, we're taking this back to the Dark Ages. And I think people don't look closely and then, and then lie about what Reconstruction was, right? Like tell this whole lie about it when in fact it was an expansion of democracy, an expansion of public schools. I mean, all of these incredible things, expansion of the right to vote um, that benefited a lot of people. Um, so, but that's always our history. And I think one of the things that I like to remind readers and my students is that when we're in the dark moments, <laughs> um, that's not necessarily how it always was. There were moments where we moved forward and there have been a concerted effort to pull us back. And we've just lived through, we're living in one of those moments right now. Yes. When the time machine game comes up or when a time machine movie comes up and you think about, is there a previous moment in American history, if I could go back, 
Or if a time machine said you have to go back, is there a time that you would want to go back to? No. 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 I mean, even when it's um even when it's a moment that looks like we're making a move forward, because we know what happens, right? We know what happens. I mean, I think one of the great things about like Toni Morrison, one of her last novels is A Mercy, and it takes place before the consolidation of the nation. And things are in flux. And and she does it so we can see it didn't have to go the way it went, right? It didn't have to go that way. That decisions were made, and many of those decisions were made in order to consolidate white supremacy, um, which was not necessarily consolidated, um, that got us where we ended up going. But it didn't have to be that way. So we can see those moments where like there's some possibility, you know, reconstruction or even before the nation is a nation and think maybe I could live there. But we know what happens. Like we know the end of that movie. So the answer is no, there's not a place I'd go back. I mean, that's <laughs> like they did in the 20s. You know, I love the clothing. But <laughs> I think about I think about the only thing I think about is is possibly going back. And, and accepting things are going to be really hard yeah. for me personally, right. but I can help others, be it in, you know, in the enslaved period yes. or the period after that of like, you know, if there was, if there was just one more person who was doing what Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman were doing, that would make so much of a difference yes. to so many people and so many families that spew out after them. But it would be incredibly difficult for you personally. Yeah. No, it would be very hard. I think that it would be, um, you know, but but I, I do think there would be something um, extraordinary about being part of a community that knew that was committed to making that difference. Mm-hmm. You know, um, one of the reasons why I write about kind of antebellum Philadelphia with like William Still and his Quaker allies, and they're, they are working that Underground Railroad, you know, and they are fighting that fugitive slave law, and they are um, really empowered by themselves, their, their refusal to accept the status quo. And so I agree with you, like, if you could go back and join that community and, you know, be there to receive the fugitive slave um, and assist her, um, that would be extraordinary. Toni Morrison comes up in this book a lot, and of course, she is perhaps the central figure of African American literature. I mean, this isn't hip hop; we don't want to rank right. people, right. but I mean, like, you know, she she is the central figure, at least of the modern post Baldwin Ellison era. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's 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 beautiful writing; it's amazing stories, but there's also so much wisdom about life that we can derive from the work. Um, talk a little bit about what you talk about Tony in this book and the life lessons that you're getting from her work. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, she's central to the book. And I think it's because so much of the book is about um, the people and the thinkers who taught me how to read, like literally my father teaching me how to read, um, but reading Tony teaching me how to read critically and how to think about America and how to think about history and how to think about ethics. And I think that great writers have the capacity to help us think about all those things, even if they aren't, they aren't trying to offer us answers. 
They're just giving us a way to see and to think and to question. Um, and so a lot of the questions that I have um, arrive from Morrison or a lot of the ways that she says, look at this community of people who have been deprived of every material thing and who have been stereotyped, and yet they have a kind of ethical way of being in the world. And she has a way of making us, through her novels, look at what those ethics are. Doesn't mean they always live up to them. Like a lot of times they don't. Um, And how a worldview can be embedded in language that we just throw away, you know? and I think that's where, you know, that's where she has something in common with the hip hop artists, right? Or with all of our kind of black vernacular artists is um, there is value in our language. And that language gives us a worldview, a philosophy, a way of thinking about life. Mm-hmm. She, I mean, there's so many themes in her work, but I think a lot about resilience. I think a lot about grace. Mm-hmm and strength under pressure. Um, what else do you think about? I think about the um, the way she sh- puts a spotlight on the kind of quiet anonymous ones. So here's an example. In almost all of her books, there are a group of women um, who, you know, would not have a spotlight on them at all. Um, and yet, they are the ones who hold the community together. They are the ones who take care of the dying. They are the ones who um, aid the sick. They are the ones who do everything that every major religion tells us that we should do. They hold it together. They're the ones. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. 
On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. They create beauty. Um, and yet they are, except in her book, um, they are nameless, they are anonymous, they are not seen. And I sometimes think of those as also being the women, the, the women, communities of women who hold, not only hold down communities, but who hold down this democracy. You know, um, I would say that they are also the ones who quietly go to the polls and save America from itself time and time again. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I, the podcast, wherever you listen. You also talk about black beauty in this book, which is something that we all spend a lot of time talking about. And I think there's been a very conscious effort over the last few years throughout society to expand the notion of what is beauty and not make it so restrictive yeah. to basically whiteness. Um, we have been on, as a people, we have been on a very specific project around that for decades, yes. right? Since you and I were little and before, I mean, like, we, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter is preceded by Black is Beautiful right. because we had to tell not just America, but ourselves, right? Yeah. We've been struggling with that within ourselves. Right. No, absolutely. It's been a, um, it's been a long, long, long road, you know? And um, I think that, you know, certainly the Black is Beautiful kind of moment from the late 60s and the early 70s is the one that really pushed that notion forward, but it wasn't the first one. I mean, the Garveyites were doing that also. Um, but I do think there's something very special about it. And I think that it has happened throughout the diaspora, but um, I, I do think that in the United States, there's been a kind of forefront of moving that forward. Um, and I, I hope that finally we are in a time when we are beginning to have much more expansive notions of what constitutes beauty. Um, I see it and I hope that's the case. We hope, but we are, we are more deeply inculcated with the master's ideas and ideals than we can imagine. I mean, like we just as black people still up. I mean, can we be honest? We yeah. still uphold light skinnedness. Oh, we do. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, as, no doubt. A, a, you know, as a pinnacle of beauty. And we, I mean, you know, obviously there are many gorgeous dark skinned right. black women and men, but we as a community no, we uphold do. that. And I think we, we struggle with, you know, do we straighten the hair? Do we thin the nose? Yeah. Do we think that's more beautiful? Are we assimilating? It, it, it's it's a struggle. It's a lifelong struggle. And, and I think that we are, um, and it's a diasporic struggle. 
you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, and we're also up against a lot. We're up against like the power of capitalism <laughs> that will constantly present us with ideals that even white people can't achieve, you know, and so it keeps you in this longing of the unachievable so that you will do everything you can to achieve it. You'll buy the makeup, you know, you'll make a billionaire out of the makeup person and and you'll buy the wigs. And, you know, there's a constant sense that there is something wrong with you that needs to be fixed. And in our instance, it's like what's wrong with us is just the way we come out of the womb. Mm, <laughs> uh, mm. And so it has been an ongoing struggle. But I think it's, it, I, I do think that there are some successes that have been made. You talk a little bit about rage and resistance. It's one of your chapters. And I've been, we've all been feeling a lot of those, you know, especially, you know, in recent months, um, when you go back and forth with, you know, what happens in some of these trials, you know, where people who, you know, either killed black people or went to a BLM rally and killed people. And, it's almost in a lot of these situations. It's like it's like we get traumatized three times because there's the story in the video, right. right? And then there's the trial where this this the 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 story comes out and the trial seems like a sham. And then usually, not always, but usually the person gets off. Yeah. So then we are traumatized a third time. Yeah. And um, you know, it's it's. It's a heavy cycle, and it's like every time, as soon as, as soon as you, when you, when somebody is getting off, then there's a new video emerges, right? To like grab our attention, and we start the cycle again. No, I, I mean it's a, it's a wonder we're still here. You know, I just look. I'm like, what a miracle! <laughs> what a miracle that we're still here, and um, that of course we're enraged. Of course, we're enraged. We're, we're in a constant state of rage and grief, and um, profound grief and mourning all the time. Um, and one of the things that I am so grateful for, I am so grateful for our artists and our organizers. And I think sometimes those are often, you know, that that those two categories combine because they take that grief and that anger and they organize it. You know. They organize it into movement, right? Seeking justice um, and a kind of love-fueled movement. Um, You know, I think that grief, you know, grief is love. We're we're enraged because we love. Um, And we can't just be totally consumed with the rage or it would destroy us. Uh, But we're traumatized as a group. Oh, we're totally traumatized. We're completely traumatized. How could how could we not be? I mean, I think in my book, there is a trauma that is central to that book, you know, um, mm-hmm. and there is a death that is central and a grief that is central. Um, and I think that there is something that that's the that's the truth of who we are as a people: death, grief, trauma. But also out of that, we produce something extraordinary. Black death is. Um constant yeah and painful and premature premature quite often uh, you know right now i'm thinking about virgil abloh passing way too early from cancer yeah young dolph young person dying way too early from violence and uh jackie avant you know who had a long 
life, but died violently in her home um, uh, in the midst of a crime. And it seems like these sorts of stories are just constant among black people. Over and over again, you know, it's um, everybody dies, you know, that way death is an equalizer. But I think the way we die is often determined in the United States by our race. Um, by our class, but also by our race. And um, as I was finishing this book, there were two things happening. I, you know, I was finishing it in the middle of the pandemic, mm. dying disproportionately. And then George Floyd, you know? And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, like, you know, we are in the middle of a global pandemic and you're still killing us? Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. I mean, over and over again. So. It was just like, we. I, I like to talk about Black resilience, but kind of white violence is just as resilient. Mm. You know? And white supremacy. And I feel like it's one of those monsters that if you don't keep your foot on its neck, it constantly rears its head. 2020 was really important because George Floyd was this super traumatizing moment Um I think that it was different partly because it took so long, you know, we could both name, you know, 30 brothers and sisters who were shot and the, the video is 20 seconds, 10 seconds. Yeah. Cause the shooting happens quickly. It's George Floyd's, you know, nine some minutes. It's a long time and it's traumatizing that it's so long. And that was horrible. And yet the, the, the pouring out into the street, of thousands and thousands of people, uh, uh, you know, across the country, black, white, Asian, everything, brown, everything. Um, that was empowering and uplifting and just sort of like, wow, like, okay, so it, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was global. Remember? Yeah. It was global. Um, and, and I was totally shocked. <laughs> I was completely shocked because I was like, those people are going to watch exactly what we just watched, right? They're going to watch that murder on camera for nine minutes and they're going to tell us that we didn't see what we saw. That's what I expected. I expected to be told, that's not what you all see, you know? Um, so when it looked like, oh my goodness, you mean they see it too? <laughs> like, okay, finally, we are all seeing the same thing. Like I can't remember a time when that was the case. Maybe when, maybe when the cameras, you know, in the '60s showed them putting dogs and hoses on black <laughs> protesters. Maybe that was the last time. So I was I was stunned by it by by the reaction. And, and some of them, some of them, right? Some of them were like, "Well, yeah, but he was on drugs yeah, and right. he had a criminal record, and why didn't he just comply?" And like, right. I know. I know. So those are the people who I think, um, you know, I've learned over the years. There are some people who I can talk to and we might be different, but there's like a ground where we have a common ground and we can talk. And those are the people where I'm like, okay, all right. So if there's any condition whatsoever under which it's okay for someone to like suffocate someone like that, that's okay with you, then you and I have nothing to talk about. Mm hmm. Mm. actually on opposite sides. You know, when we were coming up, I felt like it was 
part of our responsibility to stay in those conversations. When you're having that conversation with somebody, maybe your peer, um, be it you know in in high school or in professional life, who is saying those sorts of offensive or dumb, that like stay in the conversation, you know, debate with them, educate them, something. And one of the things that I learned from the millennial generation that was really empowering, they were like, no, protect your peace. Don't. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamin a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from tenderfoot tv campside media and iheart podcasts radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Engage in those conversations. You know, like, you go educate yourself. It's not my job. And just hearing them say that en masse made me think about the emotional energy that is sucked out of me in having those conversations with these people who are like, you know, well, you know, maybe he should have done this. Maybe he should have done that. And they gave me the courage and the pathway to say, I'm not going to have that conversation. Right. right. I mean, I think, you know, it's not like there aren't enough people who are willing to have it. There are, some, <laughs> there, there are enough people for whom that is their vocation, and I admire them and respect them, and um, they are willing to have that conversation. But at some point, I think you realize that we have so much to do and that some conversations are a waste of time, you know? Uh, so that there are some people who are just going to be on the other side. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the process of writing the book? Are you a morning writer? Are you an afternoon writer? Are you an oh. evening writer? Are you a binge writer? You write little bits at a time. That's so Do you need funny. silence? Do you are you a coffee shop person? Yeah, um, I can write almost anywhere if I'm in the space of writing. So I think for me, the hardest part is getting myself um, psychically in that space where I've, um, I'm, I'm sort of in the project. I'm curious about it. I want to know more about it. I, it's not just a kind of side thing. So once I get in that space, um, I can write almost anywhere and almost any time. I tend to be more of a morning writer, um, but I can write late at night. Um, 
I can write it almost anytime. I can write anywhere. My favorite place to write, believe it or not, is on a train. Wow. I love like a subway or like the Amtrak? Not a subway, like Amtrak. Right. So uh, if I have a nice long from here to Boston or, you know, here to D.C. or something. And I go to Philly a lot on the train. Um, So I love to write on the train. Um, But I can I can write almost anywhere once I'm in it. But it's just having to find the time and space to get in it. Um, I write uh, bits and pieces. You know, I write maybe um, two or three pages um, and then I put it aside and pick it up again. Uh, and then, then I can, I, you know, once I do those kind of two or three bits or pieces and they're scattered all over, I don't know where they're going to be in the book. Um, but I then have something to work with and I can go back in. So that, you know, that's just the way writing is my, um, it's my favorite place to be. And I resent <laughs> anything that keeps me from it when when I'm ready to do it. Mm, mm. Sometimes the internet keeps us from doing it. Oh, doesn't it? <laughs> oh my goodness. And sometimes I think we put our best stuff out there on the internet. You know, we put our ideas out there and um, some of that. Yeah. We're, we're, I mean, like, like I'll be, I'll be in the middle of it and you know, you want to know some little, some little fact, you know, like, <laughs> Oh, you know, who, who was that guy's wife or how's that word spelled? Or can I Wikipedia something a little bit deeper in this? And then you're there and then you're in a rabbit hole yes. and then something catches your eye. And now I'm looking at Nike.com and seeing what new sneakers they got. And I'm like, what, so, how? It, what does, this is your writing time. No, it's so true. It's so true. I mean, I think, you know, before the internet, it wasn't, we didn't have the convenience. So we had to go to the library or go look something up or, you know, but, you had to do that. So you had to be removed from your writing time to do that. With this, it's just easy. You can pretend that it's actually because you're trying to write and you need this little information. And it's just a great big distraction. It's a oh, huge distraction. It's the worst. <laughs> um, and then um, social media is even worse, but we don't have to. Do it. Oh, God. Right? It calls at you like, I wonder what people are saying about your last tweet. Wonder how many people liked your last Instagram post. Let's just see. Oh, your favorite TikToker. Maybe he said something new. It's 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 social justice so it's still on the still subject. On the topic, right? right. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, your dad pops up a lot yeah. in this book. He's a big, huge character. Yeah. Um, tell us about him and why he comes up so often. Yeah. So, um, he comes up so often cause he's the beginning of all of this for me. You know, um, he, um, was my first teacher. He taught me how to read and write before I went to school. Um, took me to the library, gave me books, um, made it fun, made all those things great. Um, left me notes about what to read. And then he died when I was nine years old. Oh, wow. And I was, um, devastated and confused and, um, and just started reading all of his books, you know, and, and I think was just curious about him. And that curiosity was like, what did he read? What he's a big jazz fan? What did he listen to? Um, why? What would he have thought about this? Um, so that void of losing my father so young, um, trying to fill that, I think for me, you know, had he been, or he was, he was a great dancer, but had he been like, athletic, 
I probably would have pursued athletics, you know, um, which would have been a good thing because I'm not athletic. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I think that's what it was. And he was, you know, he was a working class intellectual who loved books and and passed that love on to me and also loved black history and um, made it seem like it was very important. And so he's the starting point of all of this that ends up in the book. He's the starting point. And I go, and he also, you know, he died in a fairly traumatic way. He had a stroke and um, the police who came to our home debated about sending him to the hospital, taking him to the hospital because they thought he was drunk. It was Friday night. He was a black man. He's drunk. And then finally, after my mother begged and begged and begged, they took him to the hospital. So, um, you know, there's just a lot going on. Were you there? Were you there? There. Oh, yeah. I saw the whole thing. I mean, in fact, I ran to a neighbor when he got sick. My mother, we didn't have a phone or the phone wasn't working. And my mother sent me across the street to our neighbor to call. And we didn't have 911 at the time. Um, to call an ambulance or the police or they'd send the police first and the ambulance would come. And so I ran across the street. I told the, our neighbor to call. She did. I freaked out because the police weren't welcome in our home ever. So to bring them in was deep, you know. And then I was standing there watching them, you know, debate. And my mother saying, please, please, please. And um, my mother and I, it wasn't an ambulance. It was a police wagon. And we climbed in the back with him um, to go to the hospital. And when finally he got there, I never saw him again. He never came home. Um, and so that was, you know, that was it. That was the trauma. <laughs> and it felt like, that felt like a story that I wanted to tell. To say that um, it's not just like, you know, spectacular police killings. Um, it's day-to-day life or death interactions. And that it didn't just start happening when we got cell phones, that it's been happening. And I have one story that is one story of many. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the impetus behind a lot of the stuff. In yeah, no, the pain that we bring to what we might call this BLM era, this iPhone era, um, stands on generations and generations of seeing these things happen and our parents seeing them happen and their parents seeing them happen, um, you know, and they just weren't reported or not nearly as often, but you know, we're just reporting it more, but this been happening. It's been happening. You know, there's, um, what I say to my students, there's a, um, Ann Petrie in 1946 writes the street and there's just a little Mm. throwaway sort of throwaway story in the street where um, there's a young man who is um, shot by, by, you know, he's gone in a store and is accused of stealing and he's shot. And she says, um, she, she looks at him, the character looks at him and she's like, he's so small. He's so frail. He's so fragile. And then she says, but tomorrow in the newspaper, they will describe him as a big burly Negro. He says that in 1946, right? And how many times have we heard that? <coughs> how many times have we heard it? Like, you know, I, I, we heard it about Rodney King, you know, this superhuman strength that suddenly you know, these Black people had. And she has her character make that observation. She's like, 
so little. He's so frail. He's so fragile. I've seen at least one study on that notion of white people ascribing superhuman physical strength <laughs> to black people and especially to black men, but it doesn't cause them to be, uh, at least outside of sports, it doesn't cause them to have respect. It causes them to feel intimidated and thus want to attack and destroy. Destroy. You have to destroy it, right? So it can be it can be contained and controlled in a kind of organized sports for your spectatorship and entertainment, right? But um, to ascribe it to people who might not even have it um, because it's it's in their head, <laughs> um, you know, we've seen the consequences of that time and time again we're kind of talking around this notion, but I want to go to it a little more directly because I ask everybody who comes on the show, what does being black mean to you? um, And where does it show up in your work? And it's all your work is all about that. And this book is all about that. Um, But yeah, what does um, being black mean to you? You know, um, there's a thing that was going around talking about the internet and it was something like, you know, um, I can't remember exactly. It was like, you know, it's kind of hard, but it's lit. (laughs) So I think that's what being black means to me. I wouldn't be anything else. You know, I wouldn't be anything else. Um, I, I think that, you know, racism is hard. Racism is horrible. It is traumatic. It is um, life ending for us. But being black to me has been so meaningful and so beautiful, so extraordinary, um, that I can't imagine, I, I'd be bored to death being anything else, you know, the humor, the style, you know, the, the, the fact that everything is stylized, you know, like everything, dribbling a ball, you can't just dribble a ball, you gotta, you gotta do something else. Walking. Exactly, walking, you know, all of it. Um, so there's just like, there's just like a deep joy and pleasure, even as I acknowledge the difficulty and the pain. The difficulty and the pain doesn't come from being black. It comes from what people do because we're black. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I feel connected to a tribe that exists now and in the past, yeah. a community, Um that is very active, that is very thoughtful about what it means to be black. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and 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 you're absolutely right. The pain is not inherent to blackness. It comes from right. racism and whiteness. Exactly. Uh, what it imposes on us, not, you know, we're not inherently traumatized. No, and, and, not at all. And, you know, it's funny. I was listening to someone talking about, you know, that the, that the harder they fall, the movie, and they were talking about the black cowboys and how many cowboys were actually black. And I was like, first of all, it makes sense because it was menial, difficult labor. So why would they not be black? And then I said to my husband, I said, and now I know, like, that's where all that style came from. (laughs) Like, you know, it's the reason why cowboys have style. Like, okay, that makes sense. (laughs) You know, take a grudge job, like, you know, um, and turn it into something stylistic and, you know, with a little little bit of swag. It's like, that's black. I mean, it kind of makes your head spin 
when you think about the country kind of hates us and loves us. Mm -hmm. And it treats us the lowest in certain situations in terms of power, economics, you know, you know, jobs, you know, politics. But it treats us with the highest respect when we talk about style, athletics, food, music, you know, anything performative, any of the spot. It's like from nine to five, you're the lowest of the low. But from eight to midnight, you're the shit. Especially if you are, um, you are a source from which things can be taken. You know that that you are. I mean, I, I think about there was a um, it was a th- a, a film about a, a comedy duo, Stump and Stumpy, I think, um, this com- black comedy duo, and Jerry Lewis would talk about going to the um. Apollo Theater at night, sitting in the balcony, watching their act. And he said, and I'd steal it. I'd take it, you know? Mm. And so I always think like there's some black person at whatever, like whatever juncture that Americans have moved forward (laughs) or have done something unique and original, there's some black person who has informed it usually without attribution. Um, and that's true across the board, the food, the style, the music, the, you know, the um, achieving democracy. All of I mean, my God, think about like, I mean, so many examples of that, of, of just reading about Jack Daniels, right? You know, was, he was taught how to make it that way by somebody who worked for him. The black man did all the innovation and the white guy takes all the money and the credit. Right. Um, his name becomes, you know, and your name is forgotten and lost to history. And those sort of thefts are all over the place. All over the place. We just, you know, we, we're starting to learn the names of some of the people. But, um, you know, the cooks in the kitchen, you know, uh, who who's, their owners got credit for, you know, whatever culinary innovations they came up with. I mean, it's it's all there. It's part and parcel of who America is, and yet America doesn't want to know that, doesn't want to acknowledge that. It's in the language. It's in everything. How long did this book take you to write? I could say my whole life. (laughs) Yes, of course. Of course. But I started thinking about it. Believe it or not, Tori, I started thinking about it during the 2016 presidential election. And I was like, wait. Wait, this is really going to happen? Like they're really going to elect this man? Like, are you kidding me? And then, as as it sort of started unfolding, um, that's when I first came up with the idea. Uh, was um, I? I say I started it. I'd been collecting notes and thinking about it, but I started it during the 2016 election, and I ended it in the global pandemic and the latest iteration of the movement for Black Lives. So those are the, so three and a half, four years, about four years. And I think I probably been, I started writing it four years, but I'd been thinking about it maybe two or three years before then mm. kind of taking notes, trying to figure out what it was I was trying to say or think about, but, but the election really crystallized it for me. You are more, uh, prescient, <laughs> uh, than me because even going into election day, I was like, Oh no. There's no way we're going to like that fool. That's not going to happen. I know. You know, it's funny. I thought that we might. And I thought I was like, it's hubris for us to think that he couldn't win because this is America. 
But really, my mother, who is now 94, but was 90, 89 at the time, I talked to her that night on the phone. I'd been in Philly with her that day, came to New York to vote, um, called her up, and I said, are you going to stay up and watch the election returns? And she said, no, I'm not. I'm going to go to bed. She said, so you call me in the morning. Let me know how it turns out. I said, I'm going to be calling you saying, Madam President. And then she said, okay, good night. And then she said, baby. And I said, yeah. She said, remember, white people... <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what is she talking about? <laughs> and when I called her, then I said, he won, mama. And she said, I'm not surprised. Mm. She said, I'm not surprised. Said, I didn't want it to be true, but I'm not surprised. White people. White people. Like, not all white people, because some of them were really in shock. But some of them... You know, some of them were loud about it, and a lot of them were really quiet. And then the other ones were like, oh, my God, how did this happen? I think they were in more more shock than we were. Thanks so much to Dr. Griffin, and thanks to you for listening. Tour Ratio gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.